So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. We will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to talk about the attack by Hamas on Israel, about the larger issue of war in the Middle East, and about the West's inability to come to grips with reality. The fact is that as Israelis were wrapping up the seven-day long Jewish festival of Sukkot on Saturday, sirens ran out across the country just before dawn, and citizens soon realized it was not a false alarm. This is really important because in this particular festival, most people had turned off their cell phones. Most people were, in fact, in a partying mood. They had no connectivity to the danger of the world around them. The fact was that a surprise attack, amazingly sophisticated, was being launched by Hamas from the air, sea, and ground. They were using paragliders to come in over the walls. They had bulldozers breaking through the walls. They were coming in through the tunnels, and they launched an attack by sea. The fact is hundreds of Hamas terrorists came through and began just killing people randomly. And I personally deeply object to the use of the word militant to describe these people. These are terrorists. They're barbarians. They're people who violate every civilized rule. They kill children. In one case, they killed 40 babies. It's just horrifying. That's the setting in which we have to understand what's going on. We have here people prepared to do virtually anything. And their goal is pretty straightforward. And I want to take a minute to talk about this. It's one of the things that is mind-boggling about those people who are sympathetic to Hamas. Hamas is very, very clear about what it stands for. Let me just share with you some direct quotes from Hamas because I think it'll give you a flavor of what Israel's up against. At a rally in Gaza, Hamas leader Sheikh Nizar Rayan said, quote, we will continue until the very last usurper is driven out of our land. Now, what does that mean? It means that every single Jew would be gone. Hamas leader Mahoud Zahar told Newsday, quote, we do not recognize the Israeli enemy, nor his right to be our neighbor or to stay on the land, nor his ownership of any inch of land. Now think about what that means if you're an Israeli. It means you have two futures, leave or die. Here's another example. Abdel Aziz Rantisi told Al Jazeera and the Jerusalem Post, quote, By God, we will not leave one Jew in Palestine. We will fight them with all the strength we have. This is our land, not the Jews. Now, why am I walking you through that? Because you can't negotiate with somebody who denies you the right of existence. You can't negotiate with somebody who says, we can have peace as soon as you leave. 
And that's what they mean. As a historian, I just want to really be firm about this. When people who are fanatics say things that seem extreme, you need to understand they mean it. Hitler and Mein Kampf describes things that are horrifying. The only Western politician who actually read Mein Kampf was Winston Churchill. And once he read it, he understood that this was an existential war of survival, that as long as Hitler was in power, they could never function in any way except to defeat him. And it was Churchill's frustration trying to explain to the British people and the British politicians in the 1930s, because in a democracy, we have a very high premium on seeing people as reasonable, as someone we can work with, as someone who we can negotiate with. So it's very, very difficult to get across the notion that you have an implacable enemy who hates you, who intends to destroy you, and who regards killing you, raping you, slaughtering your children as just wonderful opportunities, who thinks that it's great fun to take the naked body of a dead woman and drag her through the streets while people spit on the body, that that's just terrific. And it's hard for us to appreciate because we don't want to come to grips with the kind of people we're dealing with. Because if we did, we'd understand you have to destroy them. You can't negotiate with them. You can't sit around and have tea with them. You can't reach temporary agreements in between slaughters. And that's what we're up against. Well, they are also very clever. I mean, look, they study us more than we study them. And they understood that the last day of Sukkot is two additional holidays in Israel in one day. Outside of Israel, it's actually two separate days. It's Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. Now, Shemini Atzeret, because all Jewish holidays center around farming and agriculture, is the day to pray for rain. More importantly, it is a Yizkor day, a day you remember and memorialize those who have passed on, a time and effect for remembering your elders and remembering your ancestors. Simchat Torah means joy of Torah. It celebrates the end of the reading of the cycle of the Torah. In Simchat Torah, you read the last chapter of Deuteronomy, why Moses was not allowed into the land of Israel. Sukkot follows Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Yom Kippur follows Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Now, people talked about this being the 50th anniversary of the war that began with Yom Kippur. And interestingly, because of the way the calendar works, Yom Kippur this year was actually in September, but it was the 50th date from the attack, which, by the way, was also picked on a religious holiday. Now, why, if you were the Arabs, would you pick a religious holiday? Because the Israeli army is an overwhelmingly citizen army. The Israeli reserves are citizen reserves. If everybody is off celebrating, being with their families, having a wonderful time, thinking religious thoughts, turning off their cell phones, you have the best moment for attacking them because they are the most vulnerable. The fact is that there were fewer troops on duty because it was a Jewish holiday. It was the right moment. You know, you can hate the people who are barbarians, but you have to also respect that they worked at this, they thought it through, and they tried to find the optimum moment to kill the maximum number of Jews. And that's what they set out to do. Now, the fact is that this attack was very thoroughly planned and trained. And I do want to say 
people knew it was being planned and trained. In fact, we have an exact quote from 2018. One of the places I look at is the Middle East Research Institute, or MEMORY. And in May of 2018, MEMORY wrote, Hamas aims to breach the border fence and murder civilians in Israeli communities near Gaza. They actually have maps with directions to them. So five years ago, memory was warning us of this kind of an attack, an attack which, if all you're trying to do is kill people, is pretty easy to plan. Find, for example, a musical festival, and ironically, tragically, it was a musical festival in favor of peace. You have hundreds of young people there. They're not armed. They're happy. They're enjoying life. And what a great target if you want to kill a lot of people. Go to the kibbutzes that are, again, available. I think the most horrifying single thing that I've seen so far, and I emphasize so far because we're not done finding out all the evil things, but the most horrifying was the particular kibbutz about a mile and a half from Gaza in which 40 babies were killed, a number of them apparently beheaded. I talked earlier today with Kevin McCarthy, who had led a congressional delegation to Israel and had actually been at that kibbutz, had seen the children, understood the risk they were taking, the hope that they had, their desire for a better future. It's a shattering moment. And what we're discovering is that the people that came across the wall, some of them using paragliders to literally go over the wall, others following bulldozers that broke through the wall, they didn't have to fight soldiers. They didn't have to fight police. Their job was just to go kill people. And so everywhere they went, they killed people, and they began kidnapping people. This is really extraordinary. So Hamas was doing a couple of things at once. They were killing randomly as many people as they could. They were taking hostages. There are some horrifying pictures of various hostages. They were taking trophies, human trophies, taking them back, literally dragging them through the streets. And there are scenes of younger people spitting on the bodies of dead Israelis, presumably Israelis. They were also in this process. We think they probably killed one Nepalese, uh, I think 13 or 14 people from Thailand, people from Germany, people from Canada, people from the United States. There are a lot of different folks in Israel other than just Israelis. Now, the fact is, and I think one of the most horrifying things other than the babies, was a grandmother who had survived the Holocaust and has now been kidnapped by Hamas. Can you imagine starting your life dealing with the Nazis and the Holocaust, living your life having had to cope with that psychologically, and then seeing late in your life all of it coming back in the form of Hamas and in many ways the new Nazis in their desire to wipe out Jews. There are 14 Americans among the casualties. But the fact is, over a 1,000 people have been killed by Hamas in a deliberate act of mass murder. Now, it's important to remember that Israel is a very small country. A 1,000 people would be approximately 26 or 27,000 Americans. Can you imagine if we had, given the way we reacted to 9-11, which was totaled 3,100 Americans and others. Can you imagine how we would be reacting today if people had come in and killed 26,000 Americans? 
And so that's a major, major challenge for us. I think it's important to understand also that in a way, the rhythm of the campaign over the last 10 years put Israel off balance. What's happened is they've gotten involved in a rocket game. Hamas fires a rocket. Israel has spent an enormous amount of money with American help and a good bit of American money on what's called the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome is a very, very sophisticated anti-missile system in which a computer tracks the missile, determines in real time where it's going to land. If it's going to hit an empty field, it ignores it. Only if it's going to hit where people are will they use up one of their defensive weapons to hit the Hamas missile. Well, on Saturday, when the attack occurred, Hamas fired hundreds of missiles, and they were pretty smart. They first fired really dumb missiles in huge numbers, both overwhelming the Iron Dome by just sheer volume and using up the Iron Dome against the least dangerous missiles, making it easier then to use their more sophisticated missiles to try to hit places like Tel Aviv. And remember, unlike the Western world's emphasis on minimizing civilian casualties, they don't care. Tel Aviv's a big city. As long as their missile hits somewhere in Tel Aviv, they're probably going to kill somebody. So from their standpoint, they don't need highly precise weapons. They just need weapons that will hit a particular general area. Now, I think that it's very important to say to yourself, if you're faced with an enemy who openly says they want to kill you, who openly says not a single Jew will remain, who is prepared to kill women and children, who's prepared to behead babies, who is prepared to seize hostages, what do you do about it? And this is where I think I disagree with virtually all of modern Western intellectual thought, which is based on the idea that somehow we can talk this out. problem with Western intellectual leadership. They believe in a rational world. They believe in reasonable negotiations. They believe everything can be talked out. But in fact, there are times and places when that's not true. There are times and places when you encounter an opponent who has to be defeated because they're not going to negotiate. In the American system, one of those times was the Civil War. It was very clear by the spring of 1862 that the South was not going to give in, that the South genuinely was afraid of the future, believed that slavery could only be saved by secession, and was prepared to break up the Union in order to save slavery. At the same time, it was very clear to Lincoln that he had to win the war, or in fact, the Union would end. And in his mind, if the Union ended, then the whole notion of self-government, of the ability of normal everyday people to solve their own problems, would be taken away. And they would end up in a situation where freedom would have shrunk dramatically and we'd be moving back towards monarchies and kingships. So Lincoln had to win. The South had to win. And the answer was not going to be sitting down and chatting. The answer was going to be one side or the other, literally engaging in total war until the side that lost simply physically couldn't do anything more. And that was, in fact, exactly what happened. Lincoln through Generals Grant and Sherman, 
established that they were going to break the capacity of the South to wage war. There's a great quote from Grant, who says that he wants General Sheridan to go into the Shenandoah Valley and destroy the Valley's ability to provide food to the Confederate Army. As Grant said, quote, eat out Virginia clean and clear so that crows flying over it for the balance of the season will have to carry their own provender with them. Sherman's entire march through Georgia and the Carolinas was aimed at destroying the capacity of the South to resist, to literally get to a point where people said, all right, I hate it. I would never voluntarily do this, but I have no choice. Well, we went through the same thing in World War II. What had happened was that in World War I, which was a horrible war, an enormous shock to the entire West, huge casualties, in the end, a negotiated settlement with Germany allowed the Germans to tell themselves they hadn't really been defeated. And they came up with a theory that they had been stabbed in the back by the bankers, by the communists, by the Jews, by somebody. And so you ended up with Hitler and you ended up with a Second World War. Going into the Second World War, the Allies, particularly Roosevelt and Churchill, looked at Nazism, fascism, and Japanese imperialism. And they said, we are going to break their capacity to ever do this again. And they waged total war, literally. And the result was, by the end of it, they had begun to collapse their capacity to fight. And people began to realize that we have no choice. We're surrendering because we have, in fact, been defeated. And in the case of Germany, where there was a particular emphasis on getting rid of the Nazis, the year after the war, we arrested 400,000 people. And we went through a process of denazification because we were determined that we were not going to have another cycle of crazed fanatics. And of course, as we discovered more about the Holocaust and the murder of Jews and the murder of Poles and the murder of gypsies, the murder of people who were mentally defective, it was astonishing how unbelievably murderous the Nazis were. And so we felt that it was totally legitimate. Well, I would argue that we have exactly the same problem today with Hamas and with the Iranian dictatorship. They're both really clear. I mean, when all the elected officials in the Iranian government chant death to America and death to Israel, what do you think they're saying? As a historian, I'm pretty clear what they're saying. They're saying death to Israel and death to America. I mean, how goofy do you have to be to tell yourself, oh, gee, I wonder what that signal means. It doesn't mean anything except death to America and death to Israel. And then you find out that they pay for the weapons, they pay for the training. It's really goofy. I mean, we have these strange quotes where, for example, Secretary Blinken says on CNN's State of the Union on October 8th, and I want you to listen to this carefully because it's so stupid, quote, there's a long relationship between Iran and Hamas. In fact, Hamas wouldn't be around in the way that it is without the support that it's received from Iran over the years. In this specific instance, we have not yet seen evidence that Iran directed or was behind this particular attack, but there's certainly a long relationship. Well, I mean, how stupid do you have to be to serve as Secretary of State for Joe Biden? We know how close they are. We know how the training was done. We know that the Iranians are constantly working with them, and we know that if Iran had not said go, they wouldn't have gone. So you can't get away from this. And of course, this is an administration which right this minute could be freezing the $6 billion that it wants to give the Iranians 
because that money is sitting in gutter in a bank, has not been released, and so they could take it back, which would be a direct blow to Iran. But you have this whole concept that somehow, you know, the Iranians are really okay, that they may talk a little rough, they may be the leading financer of terrorism on the planet, they may be arming Hamas and Hezbollah, Hezbollah is the terrorist group on the northern front of Israel, you know, but after all, we have to find ways to work together. This is a position that was taken by Obama. Biden has picked it up. The same people who were selling us out to Iran under Obama are selling us out to Iran under Biden. It's just mind-numbing. I mean, it makes you really wonder where they're coming from and what they're doing. And by the way, we now have a serious FBI investigation of the chief negotiator with Iran because it turns out that there's a very high likelihood he was a paid Iranian spy. Think about that. The Biden administration's primary advisor on Iran was, in fact, working for the Iranian dictatorship. That's how sick this whole system has gotten. So having said all that, what should the Israelis do? And I have to tell you, I'm a little concerned here. I spent a lot of time looking at this. I first began really looking seriously at the Israeli-Middle Eastern situation during the 1967 war. And I've studied it a lot since then. I've been in Israel a number of times. I know Bibi Netanyahu reasonably well. I would just say to you, the assignment is to defeat Hamas and then destroy it. And by that, I mean that the Israelis have to not just go in, not just do some bombing. You know, they have to go in and root out all of Hamas. They have to take every single person they can identify as an agent of Hamas and lock them up. They have to be prepared to create a vacuum in Gaza and then fill the vacuum with Gaza leaders who are prepared to work with Israel. Not necessarily to like Israel, but to tolerate that Israel exists. And they have to make the case that if we can live in peace, that you will be dramatically wealthier. I mean, Gaza is extraordinarily poor right now because it's both been isolated by Israel and most of the aid money which has been given to it, Hamas has taken and used to put into fighting wars. So the average, I think, income in Gaza is around $1,300 a year. In Lebanon, for example, the average is about 3900 It wouldn't take much to have Gaza be dramatically better off than it is right now. But to do that, you've got to get rid of Hamas, which is why I think you first defeat them, and then you methodically destroy them, and you recognize that there's not going to be peace in the region as long as Hamas is there. And my fear is that Israel, both because it doesn't want to get its troops into an urban environment where they will take casualties, and because the world will presently get tired of watching the Israelis kill people in Gaza and watching the Israelis blow down buildings, that the pressure will come at some point to go back to negotiating. Uh, now, remember, this is a region which the Biden administration misunderstands so thoroughly that just a week ago, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said, quote, the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. Well, that certainly blew up in his face. And the fact is that the region is dangerous. The number one job of the U.S. in the short run is to convince Hezbollah, which is the force that's in Lebanon, not to attack Israel. Our number two job is to be laying out a strategy for going after Iran, because the Iranians are the key to all of this. And we need to recognize that if the Iranians finish getting nuclear weapons, the world is going to become dramatically more dangerous. 
So the time to actually get involved and the time to do something about Iran is the very, very near future. I would also say that we need to back up the Israelis, provide them whatever equipment they need, encourage them to go into Gaza and in a methodical way to take apart and destroy the entire structure of Hamas to such a degree that they will be in a position to help create an alternative government, not of people who love Israel, but of people who are willing to tolerate living next to Israel and who are willing to operate in an environment where they know that the Israelis, in fact, will not attack them and they won't attack the Israelis. And as a part of that, there should be an opportunity for them to have a dramatic increase in their income. And if that could be done, you would find yourself, I think, in a, just a much better world, in a position where people would be able to live side by side, create opportunities, and find themselves, I think, in a much stronger position in terms of the quality of life. This, by the way, has already happened to some extent on the West Bank. The West Bank has a higher standard of living. People, generally speaking, are better off. And I think in that kind of context, that you could have that same kind of experience if you were dealing directly and head-on with people other than Hamas. But if Hamas is allowed to survive, if there's any kind of agreement that has Hamas surviving, the fact is that we will find ourselves once again within a very few years into another cycle of this. And remember, they're getting smarter. They're getting more practiced. They're thinking it through. They have lots of resources from the Iranians. And so the next attack may be even more horrifying than the current attack. That's what we're up against. This is a horrifying period. And in order to solve it, we have to be prepared to go after the people who prove that they're barbarians, who've proven that they will kill women and children, proven that they will do things that are so far beyond civilized rules that they can't then hide and protect and ask for civilization to deal with them as though they were normal, reasonable people. I am very, very concerned that we have an opportunity right now to do something that will be, I think, very, very helpful. And that is to the United States. First of all, the Congress should pass a resolution that the defeat and destruction of Hamas is the American strategic goal in helping the Israelis. President Biden should send B-2s over South Lebanon and communicate clearly to the people in Hezbollah that if they start any kind of a fight, that the United States will use its capacity. We have over 800 Tomahawk missiles in the carrier battle group offshore in the eastern Mediterranean. We have a huge capacity with our B-2s, and we could, in fact, destroy Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and return Lebanon to the control of the people from Lebanon, who don't particularly like Hezbollah anyway, because Hezbollah is, in fact, a puppet of Iran. I think we also have to be communicating to the Iranians that they will suffer very substantial costs for this kind of effort to support, sponsor, and train people to commit acts of terror. And I think that has to be real. It has to be something that they feel and that they know that the cost to them is going to keep going up under any circumstance. And this is sort of what I think we're up against. 
So let me encourage you to pay real attention, to talk to your members of the House and Senate, and to communicate that this is a time to take seriously the promise of people who say not a single Jew will survive. And this is a time to remember vividly the babies that were killed, the women that were raped and killed, the people who were drugged through the streets naked while people spit on them, the entire towns where people were slaughtered, the kids who were out there at that music festival having a great time, a dance, by the way, on behalf of peace, which is the final grand tragic irony. Don't forget them. Insist that we fix the problem by getting rid of the people who did this and making sure that folks around the world learn that terrorism not only does not pay, it guarantees you will cease to exist. Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Every time Israel's attacked, ultimately it comes down to how many civilians in Gaza are going to be killed. Let me explain something. When we fought big wars and we won, our media wasn't counting how many civilians the enemy are going to lose. They were counting how many civilians we were going to lose, the provocation of the enemy and so forth. Gaza, Hamas knows, Hamas knows that their civilians are going to die. Hamas knows that when you slaughter Jews as if you're Adolf Hitler reincarnated, that there needs to be a response. Yes, there's going to be a lot of civilians killed in Gaza. Because as we learned in Iraq and elsewhere, you cannot go door to door, door to door forever without taking massive casualties. The Iranians did it to our own soldiers in Iraq. And I don't believe the Israelis are going to put up with this anymore, regardless of what MSNBC and CNN and the Holocaust-denying New York Times has to say about it. These people are fighting for their survival. This is, it's 9-11, but for them it's World War II. Uh, you can't, uh, and you guys did a very interesting and very good history lesson, but I want to add something to it. We keep calling this the West Bank. It didn't become the West Bank until 1948 when Jordan attacked the Jews. For 4,000 years before that, it was called Judea and Samaria. That's what it is. That is the holy land of the indigenous peoples of Israel. It didn't begin in 1948. It didn't begin 300 years ago. These are the only indigenous peoples who don't get recognition as the indigenous peoples. That's number one. Number two, if we want to take a look at even recent history, then I would encourage your audience to look at Amin al-Husani. He was the Palestinian Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in the 30s and 40s. He was allied with Adolf Hitler. He met with Adolf Hitler. He told Hitler, we will do whatever you want us to do in this part of the world, the Middle East, and so forth. And they actually contributed thousands of troops to the Third Reich to fight us and to kill the Jews. That's a piece of history that needs to be told. You don't have to believe me. Hamas, Hezbollah, the Palestinian Authority, not all, but most, and this is their great hero. This is what started all this terrorism in the first place. I think it is a big mistake that to remind the American people of this. That's number, 
number one, two. And as of right now, according to Fox and the Daily Mail, Barack Obama hasn't said anything. Hmm. He hasn't issued a statement. Why is that? I'm going to tell you why. Because Obama and now Biden have betrayed the people of Israel as they have betrayed people around the world. This would not have happened under the prior administration because Trump had his foot on the throat of the Iranian regime. The Iranian people had had enough. They were rising up. <clears throat> we gave them $60 billion. I want to make this clear. In oil monies, because Biden has refused to stop the flow of oil to China, to Venezuela, to Syria, from Iran. He is not enforcing the sanctions that were put in place. Sixty billion damn dollars. He's turned over billions of dollars to the Palestinians, despite the fact that they wouldn't renege terrorism. You don't conduct yourself this way with terrorist states, with people who have a half a century or more history of terrorism and slaughter. How come we're not hearing from the commander? It's on the internet, the video, one of the commanders of this Hamas, who says it's not just the Jews in Israel, it's the Christians, it's the non-believers, it's the soft Muslims, it's the entire world. Pay attention to what these people say, because they mean it. And when we have an appeaser in the Oval Office, who's going to allow the Iranian regime, which is behind the whole damn thing, to get nuclear weapons. Just think about that. Think about how they'll blackmail us. Think about how they'll threaten us. They'll control the whole region. They've aligned themselves with communist China and fascistic Russia. They've aligned themselves with, with North Korea. They're our enemy. And we send people over there, not just money, a sympathizer to Iran, this guy Malloy, who's now lost his classification, to negotiate another nuclear deal when even the UN says they have violated every single benchmark? Mm. That they've gone from 2% uh, nuclear capability to 60% in the course of two and a half years? This is, this is appalling. The Biden administration created this situation two and a half years ago. Peace was breaking out in the Middle East. The people of Iran were rising up. The Palestinian Authority was in a box. Hamas didn't dare do what it's doing today. And you know why I'm bringing this up? Because accountability is a damn important thing. Well, Mark, Republican, don't you turning into power? I'm not turning it into a damn thing. People, open your eyes and see what happens. See what happens in Afghanistan. See that the communist Chinese, they thumb their nose at us. They're about to invade Taiwan. They look at all this. They see what the hell's going on in this country. And by the way, a footnote to my Republican friends. Are you the dumbest fools on the face of the earth? You decapitate the House of Representatives. It's unbelievable. I haven't seen Mr. Gates on TV lately. He was on yesterday. We need a strong Republican Party to stand up against the Democrat Party. Now, why is that? Well, who is supporting Hamas today? Hmm. Talib, Omar, the Democratic Socialists, which is their funding and ideological wing, for the squad and all the other Marxists in the House of Representatives. This is a huge problem. The Democrat Party is not fully supporting Israel any more than they fully support the United States. They need to get control of the Hamas wing of the Democrat Party, but they won't. What's Hakeem Jeffries doing about it? Nothing. What did Nancy Pelosi do about it? Oh, she did absolutely nothing. What's Schumer doing about it? 
Nothing. Zero. And we, and we, we have our own problems. We have where you, where you open borders. One more point. We have open borders, endless immigration. People are coming into this country who hate our country. And they're not only coming in from Central and South America. That would be bad enough that people are just flowing in. They're coming in from the Middle East. That's why you have today right. pro-Hamas rallies in New York City, mm. in Florida, in Los Angeles. You wouldn't have seen this 25, 30, 35 years ago, but you're seeing it now. So to What's your question? Or, to, to or say goodbye, called, whatever you uh, want. No, no, Mark, uh, they said, Tlaib says, uh, the, the apartheid government of Israel is responsible. They caused the suffering and the resistance represented by Hamas. Also, I think it's important that the President of the United States, though, is very vital to have his barbecue yesterday while this war was raging. So his music was blasting from the White House. I think that was important. And Matt Gates says, what's the big deal? We don't have a speaker. We'll get one Wednesday. We'll all be better off. But he thinks we're much better off when eight people rise up against 210 and oust the only power base Republicans have in Washington. It is insane. Listen, uh, you're, you're singing to the choir over here. Uh, we better be prepared for war. China is preparing for war. They're plotting for war. You know, I'm sick of this. We're not the warmongers. We're not the imperialists. We're not the colonialists. You see what's going on in the Middle East? That can spread like that to the United States of America. And what are you going to do, lefties and isolationists? You're going to blame the United States of America? You're going to join in with the Marxist left? You're going to join in with the Talibs and the Omars and the Bernie Sanders? Because you are right now. You see what's going on? This was preventable in the Middle East. And the Israelis and Americans and British and others who they're slaughtering, kidnapping, and raping, decapitating, dragging through the state, the streets, like that third damn right. This is what happens. Appeasement. Obama had a, a big theory that he was going to rearrange the Middle East. He was going to have the Iranians as a counterbalance to the Israelis. Look what's happened. Biden, he has blinked. Yesterday, Blinken said, we have no evidence right now, it's firm amazing. evidence, that Iran is behind this. Iran says it's behind it, Hezbollah says it's behind it, Hamas says they're behind it, and our Secretary of State says he doesn't have evidence? What the hell's going on in this country? Yes, and to answer another point I'd like to raise real quickly, we should, we should immediately put in the most crushing sanctions against Iran possible mm -hmm. and enforce them and strangle them economically so the people of Iran, like they try, can rise up and overthrow that regime. And let me tell you something, whether we have reporters on the ground or not, there are not only going to be civilian casualties in Gaza, there's going to be a lot of them. And this is when the media will turn on the Israelis. You know what's interesting, America? Do a little history on, your world, on world War II. Did we sit there and count German casualties? Do we sit there and count Japanese and Italian casualties? We had to wipe them off the face of the earth. Am I recommending that? I'm not recommending anything. Right. I'm just saying Israel is now in a war for its survival. This is World War II, the equivalent for Israel. They're going to have to do what they have to do to survive. You don't get to grab little children and slit their throats. No. You don't get to grab uh, IDF soldiers and decapitate them. You don't get to grab women off the street, young women, shove them in your car, drive them over the border, and rape them and murder them. You don't get to do that. And I will tell you something, unlike any other people on the face of the earth, Jews have been through hell. 
And when you hear the Israeli government say, this is the worst day since the Holocaust. The worst day since the Holocaust. There's 7 million Jews in this country, in, in Israel. 7 million. We've had 7.6 million illegal aliens come across our border in two and a half years under Biden. Two and a half years. This is a tiny country the size of, we keep hearing how dense Gaza is. Gaza was given to the Palestinians. That was your two-state solution. The land was captured by Israel from the Egyptians in the Six-Day War. They say, okay, here, let's try your two-state solution. Up to today, Joe Biden believes in a two-state solution. I have a question for the whole world. And what exactly will that other state look like? Yeah. Do they get an air force? How are of we going to stop them? They're going to have missile we'll silos? Them, we'll give them aid How and we we'll, stop we'll, they'll get an army. Want to see more Mark Levin? Go to levintv.com and subscribe now. This political movement appears strangely allied with radical Islam. Can you explain this? When I was an extremist, Islamist, fundamentalist, I would only vote left. Why is that? I saw them as very stupid. I would fear the conservatives because they come with principle. That's not someone they can brainwash. But the left, I know they have no values and no principles to begin with. I dare you to find one Islamic extremist that votes for Donald Trump. Never do it. They give their vote to the leftist who wants to run around in, in pride parades. And Islamic extremists are against gays and homosexuals and, and transgenders, but they want the left to go and get busy with that. They want them, go, go, go speak about the climate. Go, go, go speak about abortion. Go, go kill yourselves, go, go do that. And Omar, she's fighting for abortion rights and all the other, my body, my choice. Yes, go do that, go do that. But would she have an abortion? Never. Never. Would she kill a Muslim in her stomach? Never.